Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more mourning, crying, pain. No more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. William Willimon is now a United Methodist Bishop in Alabama. But when he came to be our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter, he was Dean of the Chapel at Duke University and a member of the faculty of Duke Divinity School. In one of his four presentations, he told us about a night when he had been trying to put the finishing touches on his Sunday morning sermon for the Duke students. He had worked later than he usually worked in his office there on campus. And when finally he closed his books and went out the door, he found a custodian leaning on his cleaning cart with a copy of the Bible in his hand. He said it was a paperback copy of Good News for Modern Man, and it was turned to John's revelation. Dr. Willeman said, I spoke to him and said, I'm really sorry I'm late tonight. I know I'm holding you up. I forgot about the fact that you were going to be coming at the time you did. I'm sorry. I, I, I just was right in the throes of those last few paragraphs, and I couldn't seem to quit. And the man said, that's fine. And Dr. Willeman said, I then said to him, that's a pretty tough book you're reading there. Do you understand that book? And the custodian said, I think I have the most important parts. He said, what do you think it's saying? And the custodian says, we may have things pretty rough right now, but in the end, we win. And Bishop Willeman said, by George, he had it. He had it. That's the most important thing John's revelation has to say to you. Listen to me carefully. None of the books that try to scare the thunder out of you are written by graduates of accredited United Methodist seminaries or from other denominations that we accredit. Did you hear me? None of the books of fear are written by professors or even graduates of seminaries accredited by the United Methodist University Senate. Because that's not what we hear in this book. Everything John says in this book is a reference to something that was happening in his own day. Dr. Eugene Boring, who taught at Phillips Theological Seminary, a disciple seminary that was in Enid, Oklahoma, now, of course, is in Tulsa, 
was offered a prestigious chair in New Testament studies at Bright Divinity School, TCU in Fort Worth, many years ago, accepted that offer and taught there until his retirement, says of this revelation of John, John's revelation has some important things to say to our generation, but no predictions about our generation. You heard that. Okay, then let's go to today's text. John begins this particular portion by saying, The old earth, the whole old heaven, had passed away, and in a vision I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. John knew persecutions of the Roman Empire. He was living in a cave on a little nondescript island in the Aegean Sea, the eastern part of the Mediterranean. He was a hundred kilometers off the coast of Asia Minor, about 62 miles, alone in a cave. And imagine that someday, surely, soon, he said, God is going to abolish all that's mean and hurtful. Everything that's mean and hurtful. Let me remind you that every writer of the Bible still believed the earth was flat. Every writer of the Bible believed the earth was surrounded by water. If one went far enough north, south, east, or west, one came to water. If one looked overhead, Warren saw blue, and sometimes it leaked through. If one dug down far enough, one came to water. And so the image of writers of the Bible is the same as all others of their day and time. The earth must be flat. It must rest on great pillars anchored in this gooey muck underneath, like the city of Venice, Italy. That's what they envisioned, every one of them. The waters underneath were even more frightening than the waters overhead and those around. In fact, when the book of Genesis describes the flood of Noah's time, it talks about the waters of heaven coming down and the waters of the abyss coming up. The Jews were not basically a seagoing people. And so the big dorsal fins they saw out in the Mediterranean, the fish that would occasionally breach, or the great mammals, like the whales that would breach out of the water, scared them to death. They envisioned some giant they called Leviathan. But surely, John says, someday there will be no more sea. No more scary things that lurk in the deep, deep waters. Last Sunday morning, I was telling my Sunday school class that I had seen an interview on PBS television by Lema Gabawi. One of my Sunday school class members told me after Sunday school last Sunday, well, her story is also in the most recent issue of Guidepost magazine. And so I looked that up this week to see how it dovetailed with the interview that I'd seen of her from New York. Uh, Lema lives in Monrovia, Liberia. 
Her story is, of course, that Liberia was considered perhaps the most stable of all the nations on the continent of Africa. It had been a republic of freedom and democracy. I mean, its capital city is called Monrovia from our president, James Monroe. The country itself is called Liberia from freedom and liberty. And then they had a madman who became head of their government named Charles Taylor. And his regime was so unfair and so unjust that various warlords decided to take him on. And finally they were fighting each other. Fourteen long years. Can you imagine a city larger than Tulsa when all electrical power has been cut off, all electrical wires destroyed, all public water systems fail, all sewer backs up for 14 years? When your daughters stand every chance of being raped and your little boys are conscripted into fighting for one of these warlords or the other? Lema said she was a social worker in Monrovia when God spoke to her one night in her prayers and said, Lema, these men are unbelievable. I'm going to have to count on you women. I'm going to have to count on you women and I'm going to count on you to lead them. And she said, I'm not a leader. God said, you're going to be my leader this time. All I want you to do is get a group of women to pray. Start in your church. She's a Lutheran Christian. She said, I asked my pastor if we could have a room for a women's prayer group. And he said, of course. She said, we had a dozen. But when I told them that God had told me we were supposed to pray for our country, pray for our city, pray for our daughters and sons, the next week we had two dozen. Then we had 50. Then we had 100. Then we had 1,000. She said, we asked all the Methodist Christians. We ask all the Muslim women in our country, will you pray with us? And soon we had 50,000, then we had 100,000, then we had 200,000 women who were praying. Charles Taylor began to recognize us as a, as a force, and he decided, well, he would enter into peace talks. These were set up in Ghana. And she said, so a large group of my women went with me to Ghana. The men were housed in an elaborate, beautiful, magnificent hotel. We were sitting in the sun across the street praying for the peace talks. And they dragged on and on and on. Charles Taylor was finally indicted by the world court uh, for crimes against humankind and he fled Ghana. The talks went on. And then she said one day I heard a newsboy shouting out down the street that a bomb had been set off right near the American embassy in Monrovia and 60 more people killed. And I said, by golly, that's enough. And I turned to all these women sitting out there in the sun with me with our white T-shirts on that identified us as women who were praying for the peace of our nation. I said, girls, Let's take that hotel. And they started across the street, and she said, I didn't know if they would follow me or not. They did. We started filling every hallway of that hotel. The general from Ghana who had called these proceedings together saw some of these warlords, henchmen, start into that crowd of women with clubs held up over their heads, and he shouted, I don't think I'd do that if I were you. 
And then he spoke to these warlords and their henchmen and said, Do you know why these women are treating you like little boys? Because men don't burn their cities. Real men don't destroy all electrical power, public water, sewer systems, schools. You deserve to be called little boys and to be treated like little boys. And she said they dropped their weapons to their side and went back into that room and started to work. And within two weeks, free elections had been determined for Liberia. And they elected a woman, a mother, a grandmother to be their new president. I heard her speak in Fort Worth, Texas 14 months ago at our general conference. She's in her 70s beautiful woman she stood up and said I'm your daughter I went to Methodist schools I was taught by Methodist to be a Christian finally I got to Harvard University I have an MBA from Harvard I was hired by Citibank to be in one of their biggest banks in the world my country asked me to come home and be their president Two American women heard about what was going on in Liberia and they sent a, two women over there to film this. They've made a documentary. It won the Tribeca Documentary of the Year Award just recently. You know what they named it? Pray the Devil Back to Hell. Isn't that a great name? What a great name. Pray the Devil Back to Hell. John said, Can you imagine a day when the abyss, the abyss, the sea, the hurt, the pain are no more. Number two, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. I want you to notice two things here. Those who really know the Bible who've had benefit of our long-standing best universities and schools of theology know that in the Bible the future for the earth is going to be good. The writers were not doing the Greek three-leveled universe. The writers of the Bible understood that God is going to do the good that God is going to do right here. The new city comes to earth. Here. Notice something different else. John, through the Revelation, talks about the great city as being Babylon. Well, Babylon was not the great city in John's lifetime. Babylon had been destroyed by the Persians more than 500 years before. And John knows that all of his readers will know he's not talking about Babylon. He's talking about Rome. The great city is Rome, and he calls it a harlot, a prostitute that sells itself, that sells itself to the highest bidder. But John imagines a new Jerusalem, a new great city that will be a bride. Do you see the difference? The great city, the earth, 
calls great is a harlot. Can you imagine a new city that will be like a bride? 150 years ago, Sholem Rabinovich, 1859, born in a little shtetl in Ukraine, to a poor Jewish family. They were having lots of babies like everybody tried to do back then. Then Shalom's mother died when he was only 15. His father simply couldn't provide for these children, not all of them, and Sholem was put out on the street when he was 16 to do the best he could. But he had been taught in a good Jewish household that one day the promises of God would come true, that one day there would be a land of milk and honey, of milk and honey, and that it was somehow our responsibility in our own day to find a land of milk and honey. Changed his name. Shalom he held on to. He changed Rabinovich to Alekum. Shalom Alekum. There's a song the Jews sing on late Friday, just as the sun goes down, inviting the angels of God to come and bless the lighting of the candles and the breaking of the bread. He chose it for his own name. He became a storyteller, a writer. Where is the land of milk? He told about a milkman named Tevye, who had five daughters. He's trying to raise these five daughters in a Russian shtetl, a little village. The girls don't want to do things the way their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have done it. They want to choose the men whom they're going to marry. Tevye's having all kinds of trouble. And Shalom Alekum wrote stories, told stories about a man who talks all the time to God and imagines that someday he will have enough money. He won't have to milk anymore. He can go to the synagogue every day and ask questions that will cross a rabbi's eyes until one day somebody calls him a rabbi, a teacher. Maybe someday somebody could see that I, too, am a teacher. The new city, not a harlot, but a bride. Number three, did you hear the part about to the thirsty? I will give water to the thirsty. When you get older, one reads obituaries more. I read obituaries every day. Sometimes I see the name of one of my friends, and sometimes I read obituaries about people I've never heard of. The Tulsa World had one just recently about a woman named Emma Gray. She didn't live in Tulsa. She didn't live, live in Oklahoma. She lived in Washington, D.C. She was 95 years old. I'd never heard of Emma Gray. I read. She was born in a small town in South Carolina, 1914, 95 years ago. 1914, she was raised by a grandfather who had been a slave before emancipation in 1865. The end of the war and southern slaves were freed. Her grandfather told her that when he was a boy, he was sold three different times, separated as a very young boy from his parents. 
sold to another farm, and then again and again. That this child, this slave child, understood that there was no bright future unless he could learn how to read. And so when he worked really hard and was rewarded with a penny or two, sometimes a nickel, he saved his money. And one day he asked the slave owner's son if he would teach him how to read. He at first shook his head. He said, if I pay you, how much would you charge me to teach me how to read? And the slave owner's son asked, how much have you got? And he said, I've got 20 cents. He said, I'll teach you how to read. And for 20 cents, he taught him how to read. You know what he wanted to read? The Bible. And when he learned how to read, the part he loved the best were the Ten Commandments. He talked so much about the Ten Commandments that people started calling him Tin. And Emma says when she was a little girl and she would get to go to town, somebody would point at her and say, I know who you are. You're Uncle Tin's granddaughter. When she was 29, she got married. She and her husband decided there wasn't much future in South Carolina. And the, during World War II, they moved to Washington, D.C. And the best jobs they could get, custodians. Custodians working for the United States government. He in one big building, she in another. She worked 12 long years. And her supervisor said, Emma, you are so good. You are so conscientious. I'm going to nominate you for a job cleaning the White House. She was 41 years old. She rode public transportation, a bus, got off and walked into the White House every night to clean. She worked there 24 years, beginning with President Eisenhower until she was 65 and retired. And she said, every night when I got to the Oval Office, I laid my hands on the chair where the president would sit the next day. And I prayed for him every night for 24 years. I prayed for six different presidents of our country. God Almighty prays for you. He does. And so we can believe when God says in this passage, I'm going to pitch my tent with humans. I'm going to send this wonderful new city like a bride, and I'm coming to live there myself. Three times in one verse, John says, God said, I want to be with them. I want to be with them. Rebecca Undov says that she's a lumber broker. She puts together people who need lots of lumber with people who make lots of lumber. She said on a cold winter day, she got a call from one of her Amish farmers in Pennsylvania that a load of lumber had come to him all the way from Arkansas, and it was not what he had ordered. This huge 18-wheel flatbed truck loaded with lumber, not the kind he had ordered. She said, I was trying to figure out how to solve that problem. I looked outside. It was getting dark. It's time to feed my animals, so I went out into that snow. In the corral, she said, at the barn, I had three horses and two mules. 
I was thinking about that Amish farmer who needed his lumber in this mill down in Arkansas that had messed up the load somehow, how I was going to get all that straightened out. I'm pushing a horse here and a mule there. I'm getting out their food, and I start to leave. I'm undoing the gate to go back out when suddenly one of my female mules laid her head on my shoulder. And I looked around and remembered that every night when I feed them, all three horses and both mules, I put my arms around their necks and I squeeze each one. You know what they'll do, she said? If you give them a nice hug, they take a deep breath and then they sigh. And I put my arms around this mule's neck and I said, I'm sorry. I was thinking about something else. And I squeezed her neck right up close to me, and she took a deep breath, and then she sighed, and she turned and walked to the feed. And there, on that snowy night, stood Almighty God saying, Let me hug you. I want to be with you.